0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, The Trade Guys explain why the US trade deficit has reached record levels Plus, they'll break down the political and economic dimensions of Biden's new tax plan, which is aimed at boosting U.S. manufacturing. And the administration is weighing a ban on supplying China's biggest chip maker with manufacturing equipment and a ban on imports of products from Xinjiang made with forced labor. We'll unpack both of these moves. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, a lot of talk about the U.S. trade deficit in the past several weeks. Headline in the Wall Street Journal, U.S. trade deficit widest since 2008 in July as imports outpaced exports. Why has the trade deficit ballooned?
1: Well, I think uh, it's important to take it apart. And and look, there is a good news part of this story, which is what happened uh, during the shutdowns associated with COVID, the public health crisis back in March, was a collapse in demand. And what you're seeing now through the increased imports to the US economy is a recovery of that aggregate demand. So that says the economy is getting back on pace. This is both the consumer economy, and it's important to remember that about half of what the US imports are so called intermediate goods. They are things used to make other things. So that means manufacturing companies and producers are ordering inputs. Because they they have orders to fill. So in some cases, getting back to somewhat normal demand is a good thing. On the other hand, there are a couple of reasons for U.S. exports that wound up being disappointing this month. So we exported less. A couple of the keys are services exports were down. And if you keep in mind that some big services exports, tourism, health, education, where U.S. is globally competitive, there's just less demand for it. So some of that is COVID restrictions. Also, uh, we're an energy exporter, we're an oil exporter, and uh, oil exports uh, are down in terms of dollar value because prices are down. So there's a lot in here. Uh, Overall, it's not a terrible story. It does separate itself from the president's narrative somewhat.
0: Bill, is it not a terrible story?
2: Well, I think Scott's right. There's good news because it's a sign of recovery. We ought to make one little teaching footnote here. Tourism is an export. So what that means is when foreigners come here and spend money here, that's an export. Same with education. Yeah. So it's counterintuitive, but that's the way it counts. What that means is they're not coming here because of COVID. We're not going there. So the import part of it has declined as well. But that may, you know, eventually recover, although it'll probably recover faster than business travel, I'll tell you the truth. I think the thing to notice about it, though, is that that it's a reminder that the deficit really is a function of larger macroeconomic conditions. You know, Trump has spent four years trying to reduce the deficit, the trade deficit, and use it as a measure of his economic success. Uh, and the fact is, every year that he's been in office, the deficit has been bigger than it was in Obama's last year in office in 2016. It's a function of economic events. Uh, what he did in 2017 was uh, get enacted the tax bill it was a uh, significant economic stimulus. And what happens if you stimulate the economy? People buy stuff, and that's what they did. Uh, and if they buy stuff, they're gonna buy foreign stuff as well as domestic stuff, which is what they did. The trade deficit goes up. The simple mantra here, which is sad, but true, you wanna reduce the trade deficit, have a recession. I mean, that, that's what happened in '09. The trade deficit contracted sharply. That's not a recommended policy. But he doesn't seem to get the idea that there is really is no other way to get there. Yeah, this
1: has been one of the long-running frustrations many of us have had with the president's narrative, his communication on this. At some level, I understand he's trying to simplify the story for his story of unfairness. But the fact of the matter is the United States consistently runs a current account deficit or a trade deficit, mostly because we spend more than we save. You know, we we consume uh, lots and we don't save very much now what it is what an economist will tell you is this is double entry bookkeeping You have in the national accounts as they would call them. You have the current account which includes the trade uh, Deficit or surplus and you have the capital account and the, and they are much like debits and credits. They're always in balance It's a double entry system. So the US has the great fortune of having a large capital account surplus because Treasury bills are the least bad investment in the world, and everybody wants to hold them or is happy to hold them at this point. Uh, and because of that, we're able to run large current account deficits, and therefore we spend more than we produce. And as long as we consume more than we produce, uh, we're run a trade deficit regardless of a fairness narrative that may or may not be the case.
2: But don't you think eventually we're going to get called on this? I mean, don't the chickens come home to roost at some point? Yes,
1: that's at least the monetary history would say that sooner or later, all even large current account imbalances wind up back to zero. But as Keynes said, in the long run, we'll all be dead. So it depends how long the long <laughs> run is. Speak for
2: yourself, Scott. <laughs> I
1: plan to live this, forever. This is
0: an optimistic discussion. <laughs> but let me ask this. After more than three and a half years, why has the Trump administration been unable to To narrow the deficit. I mean, the easiest way to look at it is look at federal spending.
1: Okay. We are printing money like crazy. We are spending way more than we produce. Okay. And as a nation, what that does is basically sucks in imports because we don't produce enough. Those are the macro tectonics that Bill mentioned. And we haven't changed that. In fact, over the last quarter, we made it worse. In the the second quarter of this calendar year, my goodness, most of output was federal spending. We just propped up the economy because so much of it was closed down. So whether it's bad policy or not, we don't know. But when you have a figure like like the president who wants to talk about bilateral trade deficits and surpluses and those kinds of things, it's actually inconsistent with the way the
2: the macro policy really works. Well, and even if you assume that he could do something about it, he's gone about it the wrong way. And he's got one arrow in his quiver, and that's tariffs. He seems to think erroneously that the Chinese are paying all the tariffs or the foreigners are paying off all the tariffs, which we've talked about multiple times and is simply wrong. And he ignores retaliation. So the result is, you know, we put all these tariffs on. China retaliated with all these tariffs on. What that meant is our farmers got hosed because they couldn't sell the stuff to China that they had been selling. And they lost market share and took a beating. Uh, And his response was to bail them out with more federal expenditures. But in addition, it wasn't just the farmers. The manufacturers took a beating because, as as Scott said, a significant part of our imports are basically ingredients to make other stuff, parts and components. And so we made those more expensive. And so our manufacturers, in effect, took a double hit. Their parts and components became more expensive because of our tariffs, and their end products became more expensive because of Chinese retaliatory tariffs or EU, whoever was retaliating at the moment. So it was sort of a lose-lose scenario that was guaranteed to make things worse rather than better. So the trade guys are not surprised by any of
1: this, but still grumpy about it all. (laughs) Grumpy is the right word.
0: There you go. Okay, well, that couldn't be any better exclamation point on that than what you just said, Scott. So let's move on. Big news out of the Biden campaign. Joe Biden plans to set tax penalties for companies' offshore profits. The Democratic presidential nominee is proposing a 10% tax penalty on companies that move operations overseas and a 10% tax credit for companies that create jobs in the U.S. in a policy rollout that he is doing today, Wednesday, and he's launching a renewed focus on economic issues, and he's going to promise to reverse Trump administration policies that his campaign said Amount to loopholes that allow offshoring to take place. What about all this? It has shades of the 2016 Trump campaign, doesn't it?
1: Well, see, it does. And in fact, my compliments to the campaign team that got this story out because they talked about the politically attractive side of the story, uh, which is let's punish the companies that move operations offshore which I, I think is generally pretty close to red meat when it comes to corporate tax policy for voters. And what they managed to not cover at all is the fact that the Biden plan moves the headline rate from 21%, which is current law, to 28%. And so, so a very deft press release writing because you had to get four or five paragraphs into the story to find the change in the headline rate. Just a couple of points. One is As a general matter, when you want more of something, you subsidize it. When you want less of something, you tax it. And so when you increase taxes, you'll get less of the activity you're taxing. And that may be true of offshoring, but it's also true of corporate output. The second is that corporate tax policy is notoriously difficult place to avoid unintended consequences. And many, many countries, even ones with large uh, social safety net systems or social welfare systems, have almost given up taxing corporations because it's so difficult to get the result you intend to get when you put these provisions in. So obviously it's a single article. I haven't looked at the details enough to know exactly what the mechanics are, but it's a general problem with corporate taxation. It's a lot easier to tax individual entities than it is to tax corporations, particularly those with with worldwide operations. So it's tough to get exactly what you're trying to get and not a lot of a stuff that's unintended.
2: Well, and the details aren't there. Of course, they don't have to be there. It's a campaign document. If he wins and actually produces a bill, then you'll see the details. But I think it's also hard to compare it to Trump. I mean, it's Trump-like because they're both saying the same thing, which is uh, companies should come back here. For Trump so far, it's not been much more than a a bullet point in his 50 things that he's going to do and a tweet. So Biden is ahead, not by very much, but uh, ahead in the a little bit in the detail department, but there seems to be one difference that I think is is noteworthy, and that is it's a mixture of carrots and sticks for exactly the reason that, that Scott described, uh, as is Trump's policy or proposal, a mixture of, of carrots and sticks. The stick is more nuanced in Biden's case in that the tax penalty would apply to companies that are producing stuff overseas for shipment back to the United States. Trump has not made that distinction. And I think the way Trump has framed it, all the American companies going overseas are bad and they should all come back here. Uh, and if they want to do business in China, they should ship stuff from here. The reality is that, you know, what is Procter Gamble doing in China? You know, they're selling Pampers and shampoo to Chinese. You know, they're not making Pampers to ship back to the United States. Uh, they're trying to capture the Chinese market. And, you know, knowing that 95 percent of the world's customers or consumers are outside of the U.S., it's a smart thing to do if you want to grow. The Biden plan recognizes that and says, if you're there to do that, there's no penalty. If you're there to ship products back here, then we're going to tax you. So that's a distinction that I think is worth noting.
0: Well, it's clear that both candidates are going to run on reshoring platforms with hints of protectionism, isn't it?
1: Oh sure, it's not only red meat. It's think about where this election is going to be contested. For Vice President Biden to win, he has to flip Pennsylvania and Michigan or Wisconsin, and not lose Minnesota. All right, and that's basically that's the electoral map as it sits today. And uh, all those states are sort of within the margin of error at this point, and so that reflects the policy choices that the campaign's talking about.
0: Okay, so. The next question is, is Biden's tax plan good economic policy?
1: Well, that's for the specialists to debate. And frankly, you can only debate that with a lot of details that aren't evident at this point.
0: So we're going to have to get Jack to rustle up some specialists.
1: Or actually, rather than, you know, expose my ignorance now, I'd just rather say I'd like to see the details and talk to some people who understand those details (laughs) before
2: I make a pronouncement. Fair enough. That work's going on, and we'll discuss it when it appears. I would say from my days back when I was representing companies, one of the major things I learned was that in the tax area, you've got carrots and sticks, but carrots always work better than sticks. You can bribe companies into the behavior you want. Uh, it's very hard to punish them into the behavior you don't want because they have too many options. I mean, one of the things that will happen here is, and this is true of what Biden has proposed, he wants to make it harder for companies to invert, uh, which is a fancy term for saying that they're gonna relocate their headquarters somewhere else where there's a lower tax rate. And a number of high profile US companies have done that. They've gone to Ireland, they've gone to Switzerland, they've gone to lower tax rate locations. He wants to stop that. And it's a question of unintended consequences. He can probably stop that because he can tax that activity. But the consequence of doing that is that you're likely to see simply more acquisitions you know, more U.S. companies being bought by foreign companies, and they're going to achieve the same thing that way. There are almost always ways to get around the sticks. When I was lobbying, my advice to the Obama administration, and and before that, to Kerry when he was running, was concentrate on the carrots. You're going to get much farther because companies respond to incentives. Interesting.
0: Well, I guess we'll have to see, and we'll have to talk to some of these experts. We'll have to see whether this is really going to work or not. And and I guess ultimately what it means is what Scott said, is Pennsylvania going to flip? Is, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin going to go blue or is it going to go red? We'll, we'll have to see.
2: Well, if you want a political comment, have I mean, worked for a senator from Pennsylvania for a long time? I, my prediction is that if Pennsylvania flips, uh, it'll be because of suburban women in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and Allentown, Bethlehem, Scranton, uh, it's not going to be because of this issue. It's because of the suburban women, uh, enough of whom voted for Trump to get him over the top, have decided that they're done with him. And we'll just have to wait and see.
0: We will indeed. Let's change tracks and bring it on home with what we always talk about. We can't get through a Trade Guys episode without talking about what? China. China, right? Right. Trump administration weighs blacklisting China's chip maker SMIC. What is the deal here?
2: Well, this is coming from the Pentagon. I think it's a continuation of an effort to try to further prevent the acquisition of U.S. high tech going to China. I think the the people in the Pentagon have have figured out that while we don't make all the chips in the world anymore, one thing that we do make that very few other people make is the equipment that you need to make chips, semiconductor manufacturing equipment, the equipment that draws those little lines on the chips uh, and the equipment that cuts the wafers and, and makes them and does extraordinary things. At the level of nanotechnology, I mean, it really is a huge accomplishment. There is one other cutting edge design company in the world and that's in the Netherlands. Most of them are here. And uh, most companies that make chips, including SMIC, but also including the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, and a host of others rely on U.S. equipment. The Pentagon has figured that out and figured out that if you want to hit Huawei or ZTE or anybody that you don't like this week, deny them access to the basic machinery that they need to make their product. So this is just an extension of what has been going on before. The problem with it is that for the companies that are in this business, and China, you know, aspires to develop its own machinery and its own technology. And for the, the U.S. companies that are in this business, as well as the U.S. chip companies, China is simultaneously their best customer and their biggest threat. And that's the dilemma they face. You know, if the Defense Department goes ahead with this, it's going to cost American semiconductor companies a whole boatload of money because they're not going to be able to ship products to their best customers. And they've made this point forcefully to the administration, which until recently, I think they were having some success with by pointing out that if you want us to continue to be cutting edge high-tech companies, if you want us to continue to develop next generation semiconductor manufacturing equipment, you gotta make sure we got the money to do it. And the way we're gonna get the money to do it is by exporting, always. We're a slow growth economy. You know, this is a case where we think we're doing the right thing by denying the Chinese the high tech, but we may just be kneecapping our own guys. Well, this is uh, all of a piece with continuing pressure
1: on China on many fronts. Uh, So at the same time that we have sort of a a defense and security related initiative on IT chips, we have a human rights initiative on cotton. They both have their problems. The compliance uh, and measuring compliance and ensuring compliance is extremely difficult particularly with a with a raw material like cotton that gets transformed before it is turned into the finished apparel or whatever it might be. So they've all got problems with enforcement, but it's all part of a sort of a multi-pronged approach that it appears the Trump administration is following to essentially put pressure on China on many different aspects
0: of the relationship. Okay, Scott, can you explain the cotton issue? Because a lot of this has been raised in a study by our CSIS colleague Amy Lair. And the Trump administration seems to be responding to it in some ways. The U.S. is banning some China Xinjiang firms for alleged abuse and their production of cotton. So can you explain this issue?
1: Yes. Well, this relates to the issue of the Uyghurs, the Muslim ethnic minority within uh, China, which is under severe human rights pressure and all kinds of violations alleged and, and likely true, given all that we know. And that's that's really the root of this action. It's a human rights concern. We often use sanctions like this or regimes like this to restrict access to the U.S. market. And as you said, uh, our CSIS colleague Amy Lerr has done outstanding work in providing the dimension and the approaches that the administration might take. So there's a lot of excellent work around here. It is difficult to do. It's always difficult, uh, particularly when you're a step away from the finished product. I recall uh, maybe a decade ago, there was an effort to deal with illegal logging. And the illegal logging, some of the bans got written very broadly and they started to affect products like rayon. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with rayon, but rayon is a basically a non-woven that's made from wood pulp and nobody really knows what's in that pulp <laughs> when the rayon's made. And so you you can get far enough away from the actual production process and, importantly, far enough away from the human rights violations that it becomes a nearly impossible task for the Customs and Border Protection people to correctly identify and restrict access to the U.S. market or exclude those items. Uh, so it's a challenge, but it looks like the challenge that the administration's at least contemplating going forward. This is
2: one of those rare cases where Trump is actually acting in a way that's consistent with U.S. law.
0: Has that ever happened before? Yeah. There are a few cases, yes. There's
2: a good example <laughs> where we're on firm ground. And here's another one. Section 307 of the Tariff Act of 1930 says, bans the import of stuff made with forced labor. And it's not really discretionary. I mean, it's been enforced not very rigorously over the years because it's complicated, but it's significant because it's in law. So he's doing actually what the law tells him to do. And the way the law is phrased, it really effectively puts the burden on the importer to show that the product does not contain stuff that's made by forced labor. So, you know, we don't import a lot of cotton from Xinjiang, but we import a lot of stuff that contains cotton, T-shirts, you know, a lot of the stuff comes in with Chinese ingredients. And the law puts the burden on the importer to prove that his particular product doesn't contain banned ingredients, stuff that's made with forced labor. And that's sometimes hard to do. The supply chain is long and complicated. If it's rayon, like Scott said, you know, it's very hard to figure out where this stuff began and what went into it along the way. The CPP, the Customs and Border Patrol people who have to enforce all this, they can make it a little easier if they just designate certain companies and say, if it comes from this company or that company, then we assume that it's made with forced labor because we've investigated those companies and we know their record. And then the importer is reduced to proving that it didn't come from that company. Where it gets messy and and potentially very significant is if we're CPP, just simply to say, we're going to ban everything that comes from China that contains cotton because we assume it includes cotton from Xinjiang province. And we assume that that's cotton that was growing and picked and spun into yarn, really, with forced labor. That would be huge because we buy so much apparel. So should we now
0: expect more trade action over Chinese human rights violation in the current Trump administration, potential Trump administration for four more years, and or a potential Biden administration?
2: Yeah, I think in both, to tell you the truth. I think that's right. It's hard to demonstrate that Trump really cares about human rights. But his China people have picked up on this, and it's a convenient tool to further tighten the screws on China. And I think that you'll see it from the Trump. And I think in a Democratic administration, and Biden's talked about this, human rights is a much higher priority on his agenda than it is on Trump's. And I think you'll see him doing very similar things uh, because he actually thinks it's important. But this won't be the last we've heard on this subject, regardless of what happens in
0: November. Well, gentlemen... November is approaching. We got about 60 days. So strap in your seatbelts.
1: That's what we're here for.
0: Come on. Yeah, get your popcorn ready, man. We'll be here until next time. And we'll have lots to talk about next week, I'm sure. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to The Trade
1: Guys. If you would like to learn more about U.S. trade policy and politics, we hope you'll consider enrolling in our online Crash Course with The Trade Guys, offered this September 21st and 22nd. The course will help you develop a deeper understanding of trade laws, the interplay between Congress and the executive branch, and the politics of trade over the years. Tuition is $1,000, and you can register by clicking on the link in the podcast description.
0: Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it.
2: You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.